going to speak today on what it means to serve a risen Savior and especially the uniqueness of the resurrection uh, to Christianity, how Christianity is unique among all other uh, religions that are false, and the resurrection is certainly a big part of that. Uh, of course, I had Jeff read chapter 24 of Luke. We won't actually be there today. That is the account. That is the basis for everything else we're going to say, of course, today. But uh, that's what we're going to look at, especially the uniqueness of Christianity as it concerns the resurrection. The gospel is summed up in two words, I guess, or two phrases, two concepts, and that is, first of all, the atonement, and second of all, the resurrection. Now, in one sense, we kind of look at all that at the same, you know, the gospel, that's the gospel, the essence of the gospel, but two different things are going on there. One case, Jesus is paying the penalty for sin, but the resurrection, of course, is, as I said earlier, the stamp of the Father that, yes, I have accepted it. So I raise him from the dead. I have accepted that sacrifice. Of course, Jesus is divine. He's God. The death could not hold him. Uh, we know that he only died in the flesh, of course, uh, that he had to be raised again because he's God. But uh, in the incarnation, the resurrection speaks of the surety of our justification. We can also say that without the cross work, the resurrection has no meaning. You know, if Jesus be alive, so what? If if it doesn't, if it's not connected to what he did on the cross, what does it mean to me? But of course, in both those things, it means that I have the hope of forgiveness of sins and to be with the Lord forever. And we could say that um, the uh, resurrection has no uh, purpose. Without the cross, and the cross, of course, has no purpose without the resurrection. In other words, if Jesus is dead, if he died, and he's not raised, then his death had no effect. And that, of course, leaves us where all other false religions are. So, you know, it goes both ways. The cross work needs the resurrection, and the resurrection needs the cross work. And that's why we can say, in, uh, in one sense, it's it's all one work. It's, it's all part of the gospel work of redemption. Christ, if, if he is not raised, we know that Christ is no different than uh, Gandhi or Buddha or Muhammad or any other religious uh, guru. He becomes nothing more than a moral teacher, which is what those who don't believe in the resurrection, the, the liberal, uh, the, the, the religious liberal who doesn't believe in miracles, doesn't believe really believe in God in all likelihood, or certainly not the God of the Bible, doesn't believe in the resurrection. I had an uncle who was a Southern Baptist missionary back uh, before the liberals were, uh, they separated from the conservatives. He was a liberal. Didn't believe in any of that. Didn't believe in a virgin birth or anything like that. But Jesus is more than a moral teacher precisely because he rose again and is seated upon the throne of God. If you go and visit Lenin's grave, at least uh, um, I assume it's still like that. Um, it says that he was the greatest leader of all peoples, of all countries, of all times. He was the Lord of a new humanity. He was the Savior of the world. Uh, Vladimir, Vladimir, that was his first name, right? Lenin. 
believe I have that right. Not, don't confuse it with John Lennon, but I'm talking about the communist leader, the one who uh, um, instigated the Bolshevik revolution in Russia. And, and I don't know if it's still like that in his tomb. I, I didn't really look it up. I, I can't believe it is because if anything has been disproven, it is all of that. So they say he's the savior of the world, but but of course the problem was is the word was he was all those things at least to some people, but what is he now? Well, he's nothing. Of course, he, he, we know where he is now. But Jesus, we find out like in Revelation one seventeen, when I saw him, John says, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. The living one. I died and behold I am alive forevermore and therefore we might say I have the keys of death and haze. In other words I have the way to escape the wrath of God. But it's, but he says it's because I'm the living one. Christ is anything but just another voice crying in the wilderness. He died and was raised again that we might have our sins forgiven that we might escape death and the penalty of sin, uh, and live forever within the glory of heaven. And so he didn't just come to teach a better way, because he is alive, he is the better way. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, and uh, I almost didn't preach on the resurrection today, because I thought, you know what, in, in 15, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, the whole chapter is about the resurrection but yeah, it's probably probably a good two or three months away, so I thought, well, I'll go ahead and do it anyway. And um, but in, in that passage, Paul says here, "What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, and of course he's drawing the connection because Christ is raised. One of the things is that guarantees our resurrection. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die." Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. You say, well, what has that got, the latter part got to do with the, the, the part about the resurrection? Well, um, what he's saying there is that if Christ be not raised, and it really, nothing in life matters, and we're seeing that, of course, in our culture today, as they cast off all rudimentary concepts of God and leftover influence of the Bible, nothing matters anymore. There's no morality, and, and, and those who are honest admit it. There's no real reason for us to do it, to be, behave ourselves. And what Paul's getting at there, and, and this is where the latter part of this goes, is that um, if we might as well eat, drink, just feed the flesh, Nothing matters because we're going to die. And if you don't believe in a resurrection, that means there is no God and there is no judgment. See, that, that's the thing. The resurrection reminds us there's a judgment. There, there's a day coming. There's life after death. And if you don't believe in a, in a judgment, then you immediately understand what, what we see in the world today. And we've always seen it, but we're, we're just seeing it grow exponentially worse. People don't live in light of having to face the Lord of glory because they don't believe he's alive to start with. 
So it, it has huge implications. And, and Paul says, look, it affects the way we live. Because Christ is living and he's sitting upon the throne of judgment. Now I want to say some more about the uniqueness of our faith compared to man-made religions in a moment. But first let's notice some of the unique ways the New Testament relates the resurrection to show that it is not just a concocted story. Now there's a sense in which none of that in one sense proves the resurrection. But it does help us see that the... uh it's very clear that the Bible is not a concocted story, but that it is given in a way that would make perfect sense with the truth. Uh, first of all, the disciples' inability to stay awake in the garden to me is very interesting because it illustrates at that point, because that's kind of where Christ is considered in some ways to begin his cross work, begin his suffering as he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. And he just says uh, to his closest friends, pray with me for a while. Because, you know, of, of all that's going on here. And the disciples, and I think it's deliberately from the Lord, immediately fall asleep, not once but twice. Can't do it. And I think that the point there is that what Christ is about to do only Christ can do it. Man can't enter into the work of salvation. We can't help Christ in any way. It's grace. We're at his disposal. Only he could pay for sins. And I think this is one of the ways that the Gospels remind us of what's going on. And then we read about, of course, how that when Christ died, darkness uh, covered the earth for about three hours. The, the cross, I think, illustrates the fact that as Christ was paying the ultimate penalty of sin, which is not just physical death, but we know eternal death, separation from God, God who is light and life, and all light and life comes from him. So what's the purpose of three hours of darkness? Well, I believe it's because that's the three hours in which Christ was bearing the wrath of God, the separation Something that he had never experienced before. That, that was the essence of the atonement. And I think the darkness represents, again, what is going on there. And then, uh, some of the most significant words ever uttered when Christ says, it is finished, just before he died. It was, he was not saying, I'm finished. You know, I, 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 more all I can, I, I just can't take any more, so I'm done. Or, or just, uh, I'm finished, my life is over. It's not like saying it is finished. What he's saying there is that I have finished, I have fully accomplished the atoning work that I have been sent to do. There's nothing left for anybody else to do. It is finished. The, the atonement is finished. I think it harks back to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 2. Where uh, on the seventh day, uh, God is said to have finished his work of creation. He, he did it, he, he pronounced it good, and he rested. And he said, it's done. There's nothing left for me to do. Uh, creation was done. It's not evolving. He finished it. And I think that's an illustration of what Christ here says. Now I have done the work of redemption. It's done. It's good. It's finished, and, and the resurrection, in one sense, is the, uh, the, the the Father pronouncing it good, just like He did at creation. 
Then one more thing to, to think about, and that is that the stone was rolled away, not by man. The grave clothes were neatly folded. His body was not stolen in haste. Uh, you know, again, if you somehow get 11 uh, chicken disciples to somehow get through a, a Roman company of soldiers and somehow get into the grave, what they were not going to do is take the time to unwrap several yards of cloth and then wrap them back up so it looks like a body passed out of them, wrap them back up in the shape of the body, which is how uh, John says they found it to start with, right? Uh, the, the Bible is re- just telling us what happened here. Christ rose his glorified state. He passed through his grave clothes. And the stone was rolled away from the inside, you might say, not by man, <clears throat> because the Lord is in full control of what was going on. And then the testimony of the four Gospels offers us, uh, I, I hesitate to use the word proof, it is a proof, but it, it, it's just done in a way that those who are involved in, uh, you know, dealing with criminals and liars you know, have said over and over again that the way the four Gospels give us insight into what happened, testify of Christ, is the way it would be done by people telling the truth. Uh, those, you say, who are lying almost always, uh, first of all, if you have several people lying, they, they have a, uh, they, they repeat themselves verbatim because they have a story that they've got, to, they're trying to stick to. And the truth tellers are just merely telling it in their words, and they will uh, not always agree with each other because you know, I'm telling it from my perspective. And then I think that's interesting. Again, it doesn't prove anything in a, in a one sense, but we would expect no less if the gospels were identical. You'd have two problems. First of all, it would sound made up, but you also would not have the beauty of the four gospels that. Give us four different views of Christ. You know, the, the perfect son of God, the perfect man, the perfect servant, uh, divine, as, as John has, and the king of the Jews. And so you have the, the four different ways Christ is presented that are so important. <clears throat> and I think that's just interesting. And I'm sure you've heard those things before. It's not anything new, but it's, it's, it's good to keep in mind. Sometimes we get off by ourselves, we get around some skeptics, and, and we forget that the nonsense that they're saying sounds reasonable, but only to those that don't know any better. So I, w- I want us to know better. I want us to know that they're, that the, the uh, silly, uh, godless uh, skepticism and accusations against the Word of God uh, don't hold water, and they've been refuted for 2,000 years in some cases. So we talked about in Sunday school class, you know, the, the fact that you've got that the same spot where Abraham offered Isaac is also the place where David offered a sacrifice to stop the death angel, where later Solomon built the temple, the exact same spot. That you don't make that kind of stuff up. That that shows what's going on. And so, in other words, skeptics will not believe, not because there's not evidence to some degree, but because they don't like the conclusion. It doesn't matter what kind of evidence you show them. Doctrinally, we know that they don't 
believe because God doesn't open their hearts. But unbelief is never because there's evidence against God. It is because you don't uh, want to conclude that there is a God. So that's why Romans says you suppress the truth. You have to because the world around us is, is more than enough evidence that there is a God. And so anyone who denies the God is merely suppressing what they know to be true. Because they don't like what it means. It goes right back to this. They don't want to acknowledge a uh, coming judgment. And if there's a God, there's he is someone they must answer to. And so I don't offer any of this as ultimate proof of the resurrection, but only to show that the biblical account always adds up. And skeptics throughout history have tried in vain to find something to disprove it, but they are unable. And when the Bible is held to the same scrutiny that any other historical work is held up to, it always comes forth untarnished. Every detail makes sense. Yes, there's some things about it that we cannot understand fully, that we can't put together as we want to, but that's because of man's man's problem, our finiteness, not because there's anything wrong with the word of God. We pointed out before that the resurrection then is the cornerstone of our faith. The proof that what Christ did can be trusted completely. And that was true from the book of Acts onward. Uh, one other thing that the way that the Bible relates all these things to us that is interesting is uh, the difference the of the disciples before the resurrection and after the resurrection. And, and Acts brings that out very well. Um, why would the disciples suffer such persecution if they did not believe, you know, they were not convinced that Christ was not alive? Men will die for error, obviously, that's always been true, but it's an error that they firmly believe in. They've been deluded, but they believe it, right? But the disciples would have known whether they saw Christ alive or not. I mean, there's no way to, either either they saw him or they didn't. It's not like the the, 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 the Mormon or the Muslim who has been convinced by somebody for whatever in whatever way, whatever reason, that something is true, and they might die for that. The apostle said, "No, we haven't been convinced by what someone's told us. We've seen it with our eyes. We've we've handled them with our uh, hand." I think when John in First John is is talking about how he handled Christ, the Word with his hands, I don't think he's referring so much before resurrection as he was after the resurrection, because that's what it really matters. Yeah, obviously he did before, but we touched him and we saw him and we heard him and so forth after the resurrection. So they weren't being deluded because they they were eyewitnesses of these things. And so, uh, again, along with that then, another proof is that we he is alive is because he did what he promised, and that is he gave the Holy Spirit. He said it was, it was necessary that I leave so that I can give you the promise of the Holy Spirit and the disciples uh, show that as well because we see Paul or excuse me Peter denying the Lord three times before a girl and literally a few days later he is uh, proclaiming before the very ones who crucified Jesus that what they had done and what's going to happen because they did it 
it, it, with great boldness. What explains the difference? Well, what happened just before? The Holy Spirit came down upon them, and they had uh, the full assurance and the full power of God now in their life, as we do too. And so, uh, just so, you know, when you think about, there's a reason why these things are recorded to us. They they're not just interesting stories; they're full. They're they're pregnant with truth that matters that that, that we that we must know and understand. A tremendous change had taken place. First of all, the disciples had to be convinced that they had seen the resurrected Lord. And then secondly, we see the difference that it makes with the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's just remind ourselves what Jesus said here in John 14, starting in verse 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Uh, Chapter 16, verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. So the one proof that Christ is uh, resurrected and in heaven is because he has indeed sent the Holy Spirit. And I say, how do we know that? Well, the Bible tells us, you know, in Acts 2, but all of Jerusalem and, and all that country saw it because they saw the effects of the Holy Spirit as the men spoke in tongues and other languages on the day of Pentecost and a few times later. Some of the things that we're just, uh, dealing with in First Corinthians Chapter 12, right? So, you see, it all flows together. It all's working together. It's, it's one story. There's a purpose. It's not just a bunch of Bible stories that are, that have no relationship. Not a bunch of moralistic Bible stories. And so, the, the this dwelling of the Holy Spirit, as we have seen in 1 Corinthians 12, is not reserved for the super saints. It's for all of it. It's come upon all those. It's the promise of the Lord. Because the Lord in his physical body that he will remain in forever cannot be next to each one of us in this world encouraging us to do right. Because he's in that one body. And of course we are to live by faith. And, and that wouldn't that would negate faith if we had somebody sitting right by us, right? But he can, in his spirit, which is the Holy Spirit, the spirit of Christ, he can be in all his people, be with us wherever he goes. And that's what Christ is saying there. So let me ask you this question to, to, to give evidence as to whether you have the Holy Spirit. Why are you here this morning? I was reading about one church just some time ago, but there was a church that was giving away several cars. If you came, if you came to church that day, if you were in attendance, you had a chance to win one of several cars. Now, if you've got to bribe people to uh, come and worship God and listen to what He's got to say, you aren't worshiping the same God I am, right? You certainly don't know Him, but. Uh, this is what churches do, you know. But you are, you know, you come to this. Why do you why this church? We don't have any cars to give away. We don't have anything to give you other than the word of God. 
Other churches have uh, better singers and musicians. They might have a more beautiful building. They certainly have better speakers. But why are you here today, and not just today, but why do you come back time after time to hear a gospel that smashes your ego? You know, a lot of churches, uh, they're trying to unleash the uh, conqueror, uh, the champion within you. You hear that sometimes. You know, I'm trying, we're, this is who you are. We gotta get that out. We preach the Bible, what it actually says, that we are sinners undone, that we must cast ourselves entirely upon the merits of Christ. We preach how awful hell deserving wretches we really are. We understand that if we could have driven the nails in the hands of Christ, we would have done it. If, if God had not intervened, we would have all done the same thing. Just like we would have done exactly what Adam did. There's no champion within us. We are unworthy of any grace from God. We cannot dig ourselves out of the mess that we have made. We can only fall upon Christ. That's what we preach. That's, and I preach it the best I can. And, it, and, it, and if that, and if you know yourself to be that way, then that's what you want to hear. You want, what? I need Christ. And I need the grace of God in my life. I, I, I don't, I can't. There's nothing in me that needs to be unleashed. There's a sin that needs to be eradicated. And so the answer is, why, why are we here? Is because we won't accept anything less than the truth. And it doesn't mean there aren't other churches out there preaching the truth. I'm just using that, of course, as an example. We don't need lies to tell us how good we are. That, that will only keep us from trusting Christ anyway. You know, someone comes up to me and shows me the bones of Jesus, just like they could show me the bones of Buddha or uh, Joseph Smith or whoever. Well, all that's going to do is cause me to walk away from the faith. Because what makes, you hear people say it all the time, what makes your religion better than anybody else's religion? There's only one reason at the end of the day, besides truth versus everything else is wrong, is Jesus is alive, right? That's the ultimate truth. So my faith is in a resurrected Lord, not a dead one, and my faith is not in a moralistic framework. You know, again, I don't, I don't, I'm not a Christian, I'm not a pastor, uh, because I, I, I think that, well, I think Christianity just has the best moral framework of all the other, uh, frameworks out there. No, it's certainly true. But that's got nothing to do with it, because that goes back to what Paul said there in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ isn't alive, uh, there's no moral framework to worry about. So if one does not want to believe, there's no amount of proof that's going to suffice anyway, we know. That's why so many suppress the knowledge of God in creation. It isn't the proof of God that does it, that, um, that, that, uh, they can't believe. They said the implications of what the proof is. Only a resurrected heart, uh, in, in mind, given to us by the Holy Spirit, will cause us to believe and to, uh, repent of our sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It, that's, that's certainly evidence of a resurrected Lord. It's evidence of the Holy Spirit. And so, that's why we are not, at least I am not an evidentialist. In the classic sense. In other words, I, 
I don't believe that our, our main purpose in engaging the world is to try to give evidence of creation, evidence that there's a God. There's nothing wrong with doing that. But the, the presuppositionalist is the one who says, look, everybody knows there's a God. And so I don't, I don't need to convince you of that. You know that. You're, you're suppressing it. You're denying that. That's all well and good. My job is to proclaim the gospel. To, pro, to set upon you the demands of Christ. And either the Holy Spirit's going to use that or not. See, and the evidentialist, tend to think, well, if I can just convince somebody about something, well, then maybe they'll believe. Well, you see how that plays well into Arminianism, right? The, the idea that, well, we can think it uh, and repent on our own. Another thing that makes our faith unique to, do, to those, uh, to the faith that men have devised is just the love of God himself. The Bible teaches us not only that God is love, but it Expresses it teaches us how he loves, and, and, and that same love that enables us to to love. The, the love of God it makes him unique. And of course, God is unique in in all his ways. But uh, the, the love of God, because we love only because we have first been loved by God, right? That's where love comes from. John three sixteen is often used to demonstrate God's love, but so many times it's it's done so with a twist. That tends to exalt man's pride. And so, yes, God so loved the world. And, and they mean by that, that that we're so lovable, that God just loves us so much so that he provided salvation. And if we'll just believe, he'll save us. So so salvation becomes something God has done mostly. And now it's just up to us to believe. And they, and they think somehow that that it, it, it teaches us about God's love. Well, all that is saying is that God loves us and, and wants to save us, but but it doesn't. But the, the true understanding of God's love is that God not only loved, wanted to save us, but that He did that which was necessary to save us. And a proper understanding of what of John three sixteen helps us understand it. Let's read it in its context. A couple of verses. First of all, in John three, turn there real quickly. Because remember, right just before. Jesus uses this verse. He gives us the illustration of this verse. In verse 14, it says, And Moses lifted up, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Well, why did he quote that from Numbers 21? Well, let's turn back there and just read what was going on there. And I think we'll see why. All this helps us to understand what the love of God really is. Numbers 21, of course we know that Israel has sinned and he sends these fiery serpents upon them for their sin. So Numbers 21, starting in verse 1, when the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Ephraim, he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. And Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. And the Lord heeded the voice of the people and gave over the Canaanites, and they devoted them to their cities of destruction. So the name of the place was called Hormon. From Mount Hor they set out 
by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. So, so they're under, there are, just like in our, our Sunday school message, they are under the curse of God. They have spoken out against God and against his intercessor. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. They are unthankful. It's Romans 1 all over again, where it talks about the people who suppress the knowledge of God are not thankful. It's part of being pagan, of idol worship. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents unto the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. The people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord and take away that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, he shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. And Jesus says, this is an illustration of what I am about to do. Because then he says, even as uh, Moses put this serpent on a pole, and remember, under the uh, under the law, anything on a pole didn't have to be a serpent. But a serpent, you know, represents Satan and sin. And uh, anything on, on a pole becomes cursed. And so the serpent is taking the curse of the people, the sin of the people. And if you look to it by faith, just look to it. It was an illustration of faith, is it not? Just you're bitten, you're dying, uh, your sin is about to ruin you. Look to Christ. That's what that's what Jesus is saying. Sin has afflicted them with the disease, and it's going to bring judgment of death upon them. And for some unexplained reason, God sends a way of escape by hanging something cursed upon a pole. And, and that's the answer that Jesus says, you know, even as Moses put this, uh, hung this serpent on a pole, why did he do that? It was because this is the only way that we could be saved. God created this world and allowed the fall so that he could glorify himself in the salvation of sinners. And so Jesus picks up on this and says that this is exactly what's going to happen to him, what God is going to do to him. Here is a world caught up in sin, rebelling against God, railing against him, murdering his son. On every level, they are lost. And God, in the midst of that, sends a Savior. God demonstrated his love. The word so in John 3.16 does not mean he just loves us so much. It means that he loves us in this fashion, in that, as Romans 5 says, while we were yet sinners, Christ came into the world. He sent his only begotten son into the world, raised him on a pole, and said, look to him. Look to him for salvation. And Jesus willingly comes down and allows himself to be hung on a tree and become a curse for us. And so God says, believe on the name of my son and you shall be saved. You know, what's, what's Jesus' name? Well, Jesus. Why does he say believe on the name? Because aren't we supposed to believe on Christ? Aren't we supposed to trust in his finished work? Well, yes, but it's all the same thing. Jesus 
means Yahweh saves. That's what that's what it means. J E Yahweh saves. It, it, it's a Latin a form of Yahweh. That's why we used to, you know we used to, were raised to think of Jehovah, but it, it, Yahweh a, a, a way that would be how the Hebrews spoke. So believe Jesus is Yahweh saving me. Believe in the name, who he is, what he, who he is and what he has done. We need a resurrected Savior to do that. And that's what Jesus has just explained in the earlier part of John 3, that until you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. You cannot do any of this until you're born again. So it takes the Holy Spirit. That's what makes the difference. And it's just another proof of the divine nature of this book. That something that happened in Numbers some 1,500 years before Christ in such great detail a spoke of Christ. You, 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 couldn't have, you couldn't have painted a picture of Jesus hanging on, a, on the cross in, in the days of Moses that had a clear picture of what Jesus was doing. And so John 3.16 isn't saying that God has done everything he can. Now the rest is up to you because until he gives you the Holy Spirit, you can't believe anyway. And again, again, he makes that so plain later on. Um, there it is. For this, John six forty. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. So we've already kind of dealt with that. Notice verse forty four. No one can come. So, so I say, yes, you've got to believe. Whoever believes will be saved, but just so there's no uh, confusion, no one can come, no one can believe unless uh, to be unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, one passage that we don't use too often that kind of lays out the importance of the resurrection is Hebrews chapter seven. Let's turn there before we finish this. I just want to look at some verses that deal specifically with the importance of the resurrection. John, or Hebrews chapter 7. Let's begin reading in verse 19. And of course, he's talking about how the law has made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So it's not through our works, but it's going to be through the finished work of Christ, verse 20 of Hebrews 7. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made sure without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. There's a reference to um, uh, the the Psalm, I want to say 110, uh, where he has made this promise the Father made this promise to the Son. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were made in number, were many in number, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. So the priests, there were they were priests that made sacrifices on behalf of the people, but uh, they could only do it for a while, and they died. But he who holds his priesthood permanently, we're talking about Jesus, because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost, or in other words, or fully, 
completely those who draw near to God. Through him, since he always lives to make intercession for him, for them. So it is that Christ is alive. As long as he is alive, this is what intercession means. There's a lot, I think, a lot of confusion about intercession. If Jesus isn't pleading our cause, he satisfied the Father's wrath. The Father doesn't have any wrath upon us anymore, right? For in Christ. But as long as Jesus is alive, we know that we're accepted by the Father. And that's our intercession. His life is our intercession. We're saved by his life. You can go read Romans chapter 5 and uh, it'll say some things that I think you'd find interesting. So, verse 26, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted from the heavens, or above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So any religion, any form of Christianity that says that Christ must be re-crucified. So it happens at the Mass, right? They don't make any bones about it. it. Is false. He's offered himself once for all. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of, of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made a Perfect forever. In other words, it wasn't that he wasn't perfect, they became perfect, that he became a perfect mediator, perfect savior. Because it doesn't have to be redone. Kind of put all that together. So if you want to put your eternal fate of your soul in the hands of someone's teachings who's dead, I can't stop you. But, uh, I want to trust in the one who ever lives, who stands before the Father in perfect love, and and I'm going to trust him. I'm going to seek or, or, or swim with him. If he goes down, I'm going down with him. There's, there's nowhere else to go. And I hope that's true of each one of us today. I hope there's no one there who's sitting there thinking, you know, and I just am not sure whether I want to give my salvation to Christ to take care of. You still think that, well, there's something I've got to do because that'll send you to hell quicker than anything. If you're familiar at all with uh, when Napoleon was defeated by the Duke of Wellington in a naval battle off the coast of England, uh, they were signaling from the ship towards land to let them know of the result of the battle, and they uh, the first words that they uh, signaled was Wellington defeated. And then this this thick fog moved in for, for a long time, several hours at least, and they could not continue to uh, send word out. And so the word went throughout the country that Wellington had been defeated. And then at some point, the uh, fog lifts, and they're able to, to give the whole message, Wellington defeated Napoleon. And, and this is what's going on here. For three days, it appeared that, well, Satan had won. That Jesus hadn't defeated, Jesus had been defeated. But when Christ rose from the dead, the fog cleared. And now the full light has come and we understand exactly what's taken place. We've looked at some of the 
passages that make this clear. Jesus was dead but now lives forever. He has crushed the head of Satan in sin. And that's the message that we have to give to the world. Is the, message, the only message of hope is what Paul was saying again in 1 Corinthians 15. Without that message, we're of all people most miserable. We might as well lie, lie down and die if there's not a resurrected Lord. But with this truth, we know that our God reigns. Nothing happens apart from his will. We have every reason to continue on in joy and in confidence and in faith, uh, knowing that someday we shall be with him where he is. Any questions or comments? Thank you for your attention. I hope you have a good week. May the Lord bless you. Dismissed.